0: My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio.
1: What I certainly saw from 2017, I would say, onwards, is really a failure on the part of the news media to accurately communicate the threat of climate change. And I certainly saw that most dramatically during wildfires in British Columbia. And here I was sitting in my apartment in Calgary
0: expecting... That's the voice of Sean Holman. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Sean Holman is the Wayne Crooks Professor of Environmental and Climate Journalism at the University of Victoria in Lekwungen Territory on Vancouver Island, and he is a principal investigator for the Climate Disaster Project. Earlier in his career, for around a decade, Holman worked as an investigative journalist. Back in the years when such things were new, he ran an independent investigative site called Public Eye, a British Columbia-based project focused on journalistic staples like accountability and corruption, including with respect to issues like resource development, the environment, and child welfare. When he transitioned out of that work and into academia in the early 2010s, it was in part out of a desire to have the opportunity to reflect more deeply on why exactly journalism matters, and on the importance in democracies of the public knowledge generated through journalism. He concluded that in the political environment of liberal democracies in the decades after the Second World War, information was crucial to publics making good decisions, exerting control over institutions, and experiencing a sense of certainty about the world. In more recent years, however, political life seems to be changing in some important respects. Holman said, quote, Evidence-based politics is really on the decline, unfortunately, and maybe on its way out, end quote. Certainly, there is room to debate the limits of such politics, even in their heyday. Power has always played a crucial role, after all. But there is no denying that these days, information and knowledge seem to have a reduced role in shaping the responses of both publics and institutions to the issues of the day. And things like right-wing authoritarianism and conspiracy theories are increasingly filling that space. There is no issue where the stakes of this shift are higher than the climate crisis. The evidence is clear, and the potential consequences are existential, but institutions and governments deny it, either overtly in their statements or implicitly through their actions, and substantial publics do likewise. According to Holman, journalism has done, quote, very poorly in dealing with the climate crisis, though he sees some modest improvements in the last couple of years. However, because of the decline in what he describes as evidence-based politics, he argues that even if news media had done a better job, we might not be much better off. The central question in his most recent work is, given that, what could journalists be doing differently in how they engage with the climate crisis to better serve the public good? The Climate Disaster Project is a collaboration of journalism faculty working at over a dozen post-secondary institutions across Canada and around the world. The project has students work with survivors of the climate disasters that are hitting with increasing frequency, from hurricanes on the east coast, to the intense derecho thunderstorm that hit Ontario earlier in the summer, to the fires that destroyed the town of Lytton, British Columbia last year, and many more. Rather than pursue conventional interviews with the survivors, students use an approach that is trauma-informed and collaborative to produce what are called as-told-to stories, first-person accounts in which people relate their experiences of whatever disaster they survived and its aftermath, and their thoughts about what they think needs to happen differently in the future. Along with providing a new and powerful sort of coverage for one of the defining issues of our era, another key goal of this work is to use the telling and sharing of stories to help build a broader sense of shared experience and community among survivors of disparate climate disasters, with the idea that this will not only be directly useful to survivors, but it might translate into more effective action to support survivors and to address the climate crisis. A central archive of the narratives produced through this project, called the Climate Disaster Survivor Memory Vault, will be launching in 2023. Another goal of the project is to launch solutions journalism and investigative journalism projects based on what survivors have said. Ultimately, the hope is that this project can offer a new model that journalists can add to their repertoire in the face of both the climate crisis and the challenges of the current political moment. I speak with Holman about the Climate Disaster Project.
1: My name's Sean Holman, I'm the Wayne Crooks Professor of Environmental and Climate Journalism at the University of Victoria, and I'm also Principal Investigator for the Climate Disaster Project, which works with climate disaster survivors to help them share their stories publicly and build community around that experience. I was an investigative journalist in British Columbia for 10 years. I was actually one of the early pioneers in the new media space. I launched a online investigative news service called Public Eye Online that also had a broadcast component as well called Public Eye Radio, which was broadcast on CFAX 1070, a private radio station in Victoria, and syndicated around the province. And what I was really focused on as an investigative journalist is accountability issues, corruption issues. And as part of that, I also provided significant coverage of resource development, environmental issues, and also child welfare issues as well. And I did that for 10 years, and as a result of that work, I got results, I think, about Eight different public or party officials being, you know, forced to resign or being fired as a result of investigations that I've undertaken, as well as major changes to law and policy. But. I made a transition after 10 years into academia, where I became quite interested in why we value information in democracies. In other words, why exactly do we do this thing that we do as journalists? And why does a whole bunch of other sort of evidence-based professions do the work that they do? What is it about information that we value in democracies? The conclusion I came to after undertaking that work is we really value information for two reasons. One is control, and the other is certainty. So we value information because we can make better decisions about the world around us, thereby controlling public and private institutions. And we can also better understand the past and present and better predict the future, thereby feeling more certain about the world. And these two ideas, control and certainty, have really informed politics ever since the end of the Second World War, really. But what we're also seeing is a breakdown of evidence-based politics. Information is no longer providing the control and certainty that it used to. And that is opening the space for things like right-wing authoritarianism. That's opening the space for things like conspiracy theories. So this sort of era of evidence-based politics is really on the decline, unfortunately, and may indeed be on its way out. The environmental movement and the consumer protection movement, both in the 1960s and 70s, were really early adherents and early adopters of this you know, evidence equals action formula. If only we can show people information, if only people know, then they will do something about these issues. And indeed, Rachel Carson, the author of Silent Spring, one of her favorite quotes from Jean Rostand, the French philosopher, was the obligation to endure gives us the right to know. And that has been one of the founding sort of mobilizing principles of environmentalism. But again, this idea of evidence equals action is breaking down, and it's breaking down at the worst possible time when we are confronting what really is an existential threat to our way of life, to the environment in the form of climate change. That's to a certain extent how I arrived at doing the work that I'm doing. And what I'm really interested in right now is I'm interested in what does journalism need to do at this time of crisis? If evidence equals action is no longer really the world we're living in, what is the place of journalism and how can journalism help? How can journalism be of service against the backdrop of an ever-increasing disaster around the world.
0: What's your big-picture sense of how journalism has dealt with the climate crisis?
1: It's dealt with it very poorly, I think. This was one of the motivating reasons for me to makes transition from studying the value of information to more directly studying and working in the climate space. What I certainly saw from 2017, I would say, onwards, is really a failure on the part of the news media to accurately communicate the threat of climate change. And I certainly saw that most dramatically during wildfires in British Columbia that spilled smoke over the Rockies into Alberta. And here I was sitting in my apartment in Calgary, expecting that there would be significant linkage being made by journalists to climate change within the context of these wildfires. And I simply wasn't seeing that. I simply wasn't seeing that climate connection being made. So, what was concerning for me was how can citizens possibly make good decisions about climate change if news media wasn't providing that sort of vital information? But that said, I do think to an extent, news media is doing somewhat better when it comes to climate coverage, certainly not where we would want it to be. But I think. What my original approach did not take into account is the fact that maybe no matter how much evidence is out there, no matter how much information the news media accurately communicates about climate change, maybe we are in a situation where that evidence just doesn't matter and we need to find other ways of ensuring that we take action on climate change.
0: How did the Climate Disaster Project emerge?
1: I was interested in how could journalism be of service at this particular moment in time? And I don't just mean service. In other words, how could journalists help? What I mean is how could journalists be of service to populations that are being increasingly affected every single day by climate change? And that really came out actually of some work that I did around a CBC show from the 70s called The Ombudsman. What was interesting about the ombudsman was people would write in to the show all across the country and talk to the ombudsman about the concerns that they were having with big government and the answers they weren't getting from big government. People would line up around the block when he went on these cross-country tours, just looking for someone to listen to them about the problems that they were having. It was an extraordinarily popular show. And that really got me thinking like, how could we reverse the model of journalism? I think journalists often come into situations thinking that they are going to piece together what should be done about any given problem that they're reporting on. Instead, how can we really listen to people who are being affected by climate change and serve them as journalists? And I was also at the time really interested in things like the Innocence Projects down in the United States, which again is how can lawyers serve people who you know have been depowered, are powerless, and how can we work with those people to help increase their power? So that's really the etymological motivation behind the climate disaster project. So what we do is we work with people who are climate disaster survivors through a trauma informed process to help them share their stories, the stories of their experiences. And we don't just leave it at trauma that they've experienced. We also like to hear about not just the problems that they've experienced, but also the potential solutions to the problems that they've experienced. And then from those trauma-informed interviews that we do, we prepare what's called an as-told-to story, which is a story that is written only in the survivor's own words. So it provides a firsthand account of what these individuals went through and what they're hoping for in the future. And we're hoping for a couple things from those stories. We share those stories with the news media. We also are in the process of building a climate disaster survivor memory vault, That will be an online repository for these stories. And what we're hoping to do is we're hoping to build community around the experience of climate disaster. Because if you think about it, the most powerful social movements of our time have really been about people sharing private stories publicly, and forming community around those experiences. And that's not really happening when it comes to climate change right now. So can we change that dynamic and build a strong community around this emerging identity of being a climate disaster survivor? We're also hoping to help empower those communities by, again, listening to what their solutions are, listening to what their common problems are, and then launching solutions, journalism, and investigative journalism mm-hmm. projects around what our survivors have actually told us. The larger thing that we're trying to accomplish with the Climate Disaster Project is we also know in the absence of control uncertainty, people look for pretty unhealthy forms of control uncertainty, right-wing authoritarianism, conspiracy theories, etc. That's just going to become worse in the future. So what we're also hoping is that through this project, we can also help build more equitable, more resilient, more just, evidence-based communities around the experience of climate change. Because there's a real risk that as climate change becomes worse and worse, and as the crises that surround climate change become worse and worse, that you will see the development of the kind of communities none of us really want to see, communities with walls around them, exclusionary communities, racism and xenophobia like you wouldn't believe. That really is a potential future, and we really need to be thinking right now about how do we avoid that.
0: And how does the project work organizationally?
1: We're actually a network of a number of various different post-secondary institutions, not just around the country, but also around the world. We have 14 participating institutions next year. And that includes, you know, everyone from the University of Victoria, where I'm based, to the University of Queensland in Australia. And what we do is we actually run a class where students do this work. They work with climate disaster survivors, help them share their experiences, and then they launch solutions journalism and investigative journalism projects. And we find that this experience is really transformative for our students Because in a lot of ways, it also allows them to deal with the reality of climate change. It's not climate change in the future tense. It's climate change as it is happening right now. What can we do about it right now? And I think that's really valuable because right now the climate movement is really a movement based on anxiety. It's based on future tense scenarios And the gap that exists between the horribleness of what the future could look like versus the chances that we're going to take action (laughs) to address that, to head those futures off. And that's not really a healthy space for many people to be in. So what can we do about climate change right now? What actions can we take when it comes to climate change right now that will be healthy, that we can build community around?
0: Walk listeners through the process in a little bit more detail
1: i mentioned that we use sort of a trauma-informed process to do this work. What does that actually look like? Well, what we recognize is that people who have lived through disasters, which, by the way, is going to be all of us eventually, have experienced a profound lack of power and a profound lack of control. The news media really risks creating what's called a second wound when working with disaster populations, when working with any traumatized population for that matter, because think about it. There's a lot about journalism that takes power away from the people that we work with. So what we do is we sit down with a climate disaster survivor for a pre-interview before we ever conduct an interview. And we do have a list of core questions that we'd like to ask as part of our work. But we don't just share those questions in advance which is unusual, by the way, in journalism. Instead, what we do is we go through those questions. We ask our survivor what they think about those questions, whether or not they'd like to change them, whether or not they'd like to remove certain questions, whether or not they'd like to add certain questions. So what we're doing here is we're actually giving the survivor more control. And then we actually sit down for the interview. And from that interview, a transcript and an as-told-to profile are created. And then what we do is we provide the survivor with a copy of the transcript and also a copy of the as-told-to profile. This is the story that's written in their own words that's taught by a biography. And what we tell them is that they can remove any information that makes them uncomfortable. They can add information that they've forgotten about, or they can correct things that they got wrong. And within those boundaries, that then provides the survivor with, again, a lot of control, And it is only after we go through that process that we actually then share the story publicly. Now, this isn't a process that we would use for everyone. This certainly isn't a process for someone that we were attempting to hold to account. But it is a process that we use for people who are climate disaster survivors. And what that means is we are really, truly working with the populations. We're co-creating with the populations that we're working with these stories. And we think that's also important from a media trust-building standpoint. A lot of these populations have a significant lack of trust in the media, in part because of the experiences that they've had with news media covering their disasters. So it's a process that we have found to be extraordinarily rewarding, both for the students who end up administering these interviews and also for the survivors themselves.
0: What are some of the contexts where you've applied this approach?
1: We've actually done this work all across the country. We've talked to folks who were impacted by the intense storm that hit Ontario this summer. We've worked with folks up in Lytton in British Columbia, where the buildings there were destroyed by fire. We've worked with people who are survivors of hurricanes on the East Coast, and we've worked with people internationally as well. By the end of the summer, we expect to have 78 survivor interviews, and we expect to have another 100 in the fall.
0: I'm sure it varies a lot from person to person and from disaster to disaster, but what can you say in general terms about the kinds of things that you hear from survivors?
1: One of the things that we often hear from survivors is that the government isn't coming to help. And that's really troubling, but I think that's a reality that we're going to need to deal with. There's so many risks that we're not really thinking about right now when it comes to climate change. These disasters are really going to stretch the capacity of government to probably the breaking point. Government does not have the capacity right now to deal with the kind of disasters that we're seeing all around the world and does not have the capacity to deal with the increasing frequency and severity of these disasters. And I worry about that, right? I worry about what that means. And I think it does point to the exact thing that our project is trying to do, which is build community around this experience and can community fill the gaps that government really may be unable to fill over the next 30 years of unremitting and ever worsening climate change.
0: What kinds of responses to this approach have you had from your colleagues and from the broader media industry?
1: Obviously, this is a different approach than a lot of journalists use in their sort of day-to-day coverage. But it is at the same time not entirely abnormal within the trauma-informed space. So I think there's a lot of journalists out there who recognize the challenges that journalism currently has when it comes to working with vulnerable and marginalized populations and are really game for trying something new. There are, of course, also journalists who this process might be uncomfortable because it is different, right, than what we typically do as journalists. And I think that's okay. As someone who practiced very traditional investigative journalism for 10 years, I get it. This process doesn't mean I don't think that there's value in other journalistic processes. But I do think we need to try new things. And that's part of what the Climate Disaster Project is all about.
0: You mentioned that part of the goal of the project is to use this sharing of stories to build and empower community. In practical terms, how does that side of things work?
1: The three words that we use to summarize our work are story, community, hope it starts off with the sharing of story, as I mentioned. And that's really important for community building because we can't possibly build community without knowing one another, to know and be known. And then it's not necessarily up to us to determine what that community is going to look like. It's up to us to try and help facilitate that. And we also will be doing that in the form of bringing climate disaster survivors together for forums, Talk about, you know, climate disaster, talk about their experiences, share best practices, come up with solutions, et cetera, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. from that work, that's how we create hope, because if we're able to start changing things, right, either through community action or through investigative journalism or solutions journalism. That really is what creates hope, the idea of we can actually have some control at this profound moment of profound instability and lack of control. And I think that's really the value of the Climate Disaster Project.
0: One of the key points of Rebecca Solnit's book about disasters was that when you look at them, you'll always see people who are already helping each other. What have you seen in that regard, in terms of the climate disasters that you've covered?
1: We definitely have seen that. Lytton, which is the community that I just came from, nine days of working up there, really embodies that. You know, communities helping one another, right? People helping one another. We visited with two folks who live just on Lytton First Nations land, and their farm was burned down. And as a result of the community coming together, they're now the first building to be rebuilt, And that was purely as a result of community action. It wasn't a result of government action at all. And I think that really points to the kind of strong communities that can be really built as a result of climate change.
0: What have you learned from your work on this project in terms of your original question about the roles that journalism can play in a context that's moving away from evidence-based action in the political sphere?
1: I suspect that journalism is going to become more about community building in the future than it is about providing control and certainty through information. And I can be sad about that, which I am. I can want to preserve evidence-based decision-making, which I hope I'm trying to do, as are all the other faculty who are leading this project. But I think we have to recognize the reality of where we're at, right, when it comes to evidence-based decision-making and the current state of evidence-based decision-making. It is a much different universe than the one that, for example, investigative journalism was born into. We're at a very different space and time. And I do think that in the future, control and certainty, we will look to community to provide that. And the question is, what kind of communities will we look to? Journalism has real opportunity to help create more equitable, more just, more resilient, evidence-based communities as a result of climate change. If we don't do that, if we don't undertake this work, and if others don't undertake this work, the results could be pretty devastating for everything that we claim to cherish.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Sean Holman about the Climate Disaster Project. To learn more about it, go to climatedisasterproject.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.